Well, hey, we are going to jump um, back in uh, to the book of Genesis. Um, the last uh, message that I gave before um, I left for California. I'm so grateful for Ian and the word that he gave last week. Um, but the message I gave was on, on the fall. Um, and there was obviously a ton of content and a lot of, of territory to, um, to cover um, because the works of the enemy um, are the same. Uh, there, there's no new, no, no new tricks. Temptation, accusation, all under the umbrella of, of deception um, is the name of the game when it comes to the kingdom of darkness. Um, but rebellion and fall um, is the outcome. And today we're going to consider the consequences of our first parents and sin entering into the human story. And what we will be looking at um, is the judgment. But what I want to just establish out of the gate is, as I studied this um, in depth, is that the judgment of God uh, seems to have, uh, out of, from the, from the very first words to our first parents, uh, seems to have a redemptive or restorative quality to it. Um, I could call it almost a wrath that restores, that mercy and grace is still actually um, uh, underneath what can feel like a harsh word. And I just want you to know that's because the wrath of God is not the removal of his love, but the wrath of God is merely the love of God violated. In other words, God is consistent with his character. He is a gracious God, and the scales tip toward mercy in Scripture. Um, but even his wrath, his judgment, uh, is, is often restorative. It's meant to burn clean. Um, it's often meant to bring back um, people back into right relationship um, with him. And there, but there's still the reality of this, is that you and I can do something stupid. Say, uh, say you drive and you've had too much to drink and you hit someone and that person dies and you are accused of, of you know, involuntary manslaughter and you're gonna go to prison for that. Uh, does that mean you're not forgiven? No, it just means that there is cause and effect. Um, that what sin ultimately leads to um, is death on multiple levels, death in relationship, death and freedom. Uh, it, it brings about destruction, but that doesn't mean that God isn't able to um, commandeer what we intend for evil to bring about good. Uh, and, and I think that that is a powerful um, reality in scripture. In fact, the cross is the culmination of God taking the worst that man can do and actually utilizing it as the very vehicle for salvation. He actually takes Satan's primary desire, which is if Jesus has come to give us life and to give it abundantly, if I could borrow from C.S. Lewis and the unman in, Paraland in uh, Paralandria, I have come to give you death and to give it to you abundantly. That is Satan's mission. And Jesus says, fine, I will take your, your mission. I will take your weapons 
and I will allow you to think you're winning and what Jesus does on the cross is actually takes the thing that Satan does to bring destruction and takes it into himself in such a way that it becomes the very means by which we enter into life. Death becomes now for the believer um, the means by which we are ushered into more life. And so this is a beautiful aspect of God's ability to take the dissonant notes of human existence and to weave it into his redemptive story. Um, so I want to just begin here um, with this first section, uh, which is Genesis chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. I'm sorry, there's a typo on my slide. Uh, and there are, there are three players that God is addressing. This is essentially like a trial. Uh, and the players is, uh, is Adam, who uh, turns Eve into the scapegoat. You have Eve, who's the one who is deceived, and then you have the deceiver, the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, it says, But the Lord called to the man. Remember, they, we closed uh, the last message with uh, Adam and Eve hearing God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and calling out for them, and they are afraid. Um, they are naked, afraid, and they are now, instead of living in the light, they are living out what is always the consequence of sin, which is the temptation to hide. And they are hiding now from the one who they were in fellowship with, now they are afraid of him. Uh, and they are hiding in the shame and the guilt of what they have done. They have eaten of the fruit, the one tree that God said, you cannot eat from this tree, they, they did. The woman was deceived by the serpent to believe that God was somehow withholding from them. The serpent told them a truth without giving them the full details. There was a withholding of information. Uh, and Eve saw that the, food looked, the fruit looked good and was desirable for food and she ate it and she gave it to the man who's been sitting silently behind her um, and he eats it and then their eyes are opened. Um, they have chosen to define for themselves what is right and wrong. They have in many ways become gods but it is, it is false gods which has actually destroyed fellowship with the living God. So Satan was right, you will, become like, you will become like God, but he was withholding some serious information, but it won't be real. <laughs> You'll become your own God and it's actually gonna bring death, not life. I'm just gonna hold that part back from you. So here is the trial. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was, a naked, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the, fruit, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, and here we have the scapegoat mechanism. It's the first, the first time um, this, is, this kind of idea enters into scripture, which will be a motif throughout the Bible and a motif throughout human history. Uh, we're watching it play out in the Middle East right now. Everybody wants to put, put the blame on someone, doesn't it? Everyone wants to put the blame on anyone but themselves. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. it wasn't me, it was her. There's, the, there's the, the primordial cry from the garden that's still being played out in modern history. And then what, what does God say? Then the Lord said to the woman, 
what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You know, I, I actually feel like I misinterpreted um, the woman's phrase uh, when I was writing my book, Stumbling Toward Eternity, because what I, 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 I was um, focusing in on is what Rene Girard calls the mimetic theory, which is that everything in human existence is driven by covetousness, that the fall has created covetousness at the kind of the center. If, if covetousness is the, is the 10th commandment, if you actually turned it upside down, if you removed coveting, um, you probably wouldn't have lying or stealing or adultery and ultimately murder. And it kind of works in that order. The, the desire for what another has that you can't have is, is what creates violence in societies. Um, and it's also what produces the scapegoat mechanism, which is, is that when the violence in a society arises due to the displaced desire, what we end up needing is someone to blame for the mess that we're in. And so we look for that scapegoat mechanism. A few years ago, it was Derek Chauvin. He became the symbol of all that is wrong in, in our country. And there was great celebration when the verdict was given and that man was sent to prison uh, for excessive use of force uh, against, against, a, against a man who um, was also actually doing things that wasn't right, but clearly was killed and we're like, and the nation came apart at that. And it came apart without even knowing all the details. We don't know that much about Derek Chauvin. We don't know what his history is. We only know what the media gave us. What he did was evil. Uh, what he did was murder. But we, we attached all sorts, America's history of racism to one human being and he became the scapegoat. I remember seeing Christians the day that he was um, in, uh, sent to prison seeing Christians post, I hope he burns in hell. And this shows the, the, the necessity that we have in a fallen state is that we want to have someone to blame for the pain that we have endured. But our inability to see that we all play a part in the broken narrative. Uh, and sin is colorblind, by the way. Um, it, it, sin is, 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 is not... Uh, is, is not changed by economic uh, situations. It's not, it's not changed by, by your race. It just is the human experience. Sin is what we are at the core of our being. That is, we always seem to want to be our own gods until it doesn't work out for us and then we wanna blame someone else. Um, and this is why we have to understand the scapegoat mechanism. Uh, and it wasn't Eve actually that was scapegoating. I thought she was scapegoating the serpent. Um, you know, it's the classic statement. It wasn't me, it was the, the devil made me do it. There was actually a famous trial of a guy who claimed to have committed a, a heinous murder because he was possessed. That actually has happened. There's a movie made about it. It was deeply sensationalized, but that actually was a real thing. The guy's like, I don't know how. They were just dead. It was a demon, made me do it. Um, and. We always want to blame someone, that's true. But in this particular situation, um, what Scripture actually honors uh, is that Eve indeed was deceived. Uh, in fact, in the New Testament, Paul writes uh, to the church in Corinth, he says, 
do not lose your simplicity of the gospel lest you become deceived like Eve was in the garden. Uh, and that's not a statement about women's, uh, women are, easy, are gullible. This is not a statement about the sexes. This, was, this is a statement about the, about the failure of our first parents to live, to coexist as, um, as, as a people that are working together to honor uh, God's command over them to flourish, um, to be co-laborers with them. Adam is silently sitting in the back, and this is why I would argue um, there is a distinction in roles between men and women, and that distinction should not trouble us because there's a distinction in the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not an equality question, it's just we have different roles. I am never going to give birth to a, a child, and I'm grateful um, <laughs> because I've seen it, and it's violent. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget watching a doctor have his arms in my wife's stomach up to his elbow and being like, that doesn't look right. That, I'm not, I'm positive. I've seen horror movies, and this looks worse. <laughs> uh, that is, not, that is not my role. I don't, that's not something that I will, ever, I will ever be able to do. There are differences, and there are actually God calls com commands on, on how, we should, how we should function as human beings. And those tensions um, obviously are playing out in our modern context like crazy. But here, what we have is the failure of the man to be alongside his wife, to be protecting her, and for them together to be to be defending themselves against the lies of the enemy, but instead you have the, the, the man sitting silently behind while his wife is, is tempted and deceived by the serpent, and he does nothing to intervene. And it's interesting enough that the entire fall seems to fall almost squarely on the head of the man. In fact, in the New Testament, it says, sin entered the world through the first man. Uh, Adam and salvation has come into the world through the second Adam Jesus um, and so so the he becomes is the, uh, the the picture is that the head of the household is not superiority it's you are the representative man of that of that household and as the representative he failed in his responsibility to represent that family well um, that's the picture that we have here. But I think this is interesting. The, the man responds, wasn't me, it was the woman. The woman responds, it was the serpent who deceived me. And then just notice the serpent's response. Do you notice anything about the serpent's response? There is no response. Because he's the only one that's thinking honest in this story. He's like, I did it, I'm a liar. I've, you got me again. Uh, there is there is there is nothing to say because Satan is in his core a liar. That is that there is he is devoid. He is. This is why um, Karl Barth refers to Satan uh, as the dasnitig, the the nothingness. And it's a complex idea, but the idea is that. All life has its being in God. Everything that is living has its life in God. Satan is so devoid of the life of God that he is what Bart refers to as an, a very active, a very real, and a very personal nothingness. Um, in other words, there's no substance to him. 
But that doesn't mean he's not real, and it doesn't mean he's not dangerous. It just means that he does not have some people, you know, there's philosophical questions. Does God love Satan? There is nothing to love in Satan. The deception is so full and so fully realized and embodied. He rejected God. If we hold to the traditional vision of the church's history, which was that Satan is a fallen angel, um, and there's many that actually um, argue against that, but that's kind of a modern phenomenon. I, I have friends actually that I'm like, well, what is he? And like, I don't know. But he's not that. I'm like, well, I don't, I, I, I think scripture actually supports the traditional, the traditional orthodox vision of this. Uh, but the bottom line is, whatever he is, he has so fully rejected the light that he is become essentially very dangerous and evil nothingness, which is exactly what he wants to reduce us to. This is what sin does. It's the, it's the essence of ultimate death. Um, and I think that, that this is a, a terrifying um, picture of that deception. But let's look now at the judgment because it's a powerful, it's a powerful story. Um, in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 16, um, we see a curse, we see a promise, we see judgment that, that seems to usher in this idea now, a theme, a motif that life will come through suffering and then, um, and then a conflict. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's just stop right there. Let's consider the snake first. The snake, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 3, was crafty. That is the Hebrew word erum. Um, and that's not a word that is a bad word. Jacob is also called crafty. Um, and he was, he was, you know, what are we told by Jesus? To be wise as what? Serpents, but as harmless as doves. Uh, Proverbs uses this word. It's, it's, it's actually wise. Um, it's, a, it's a word for wisdom, but it also can mean wisdom that is used to manipulate the world, the, the, the system. So it's a neutral word. What's, what's at stake is how do we utilize that wisdom? How do we utilize that knowledge? Uh, but it's so interesting because the, the Hebrew writers um, are so clever. Uh, there's so much genius in the word plays. Uh, and I wish we could all read in Hebrew because it's, it's, much, it's much more concise and that word Aram, crafty, he is now cursed, and it's a play on words, error, A-R-U-R versus A-R-U-M. Uh, and this, this is the most cursed of animals. And so the question of the curse um, that distinguishes him above all the livestock is not the, we, we raise all these kind of silly questions. Well, does that mean that the snake once had legs, he was a dragon, now he's a serpent? Um, I, the point is not, uh, the snakes crawling on its belly, the, the, symbol, the symbolic meaning of that, to eat of the dust, is a picture throughout Scripture. It's a motif of total defeat. Um, it's, a, it's a picture of like, this is like you are a defeated foe. So God is already proclaiming a complete victory over the serpent 
and it's, he's not talking about snakes any longer. Uh, and even the opening passage, there is, we are meant to see that there is something deeper going on than just some kind of magical snake in the garden. There is, there is an evil presence that seems to be in opposition um, against God, and that there is a kingdom that is, that is marked by opposition to God, that kingdom of darkness, and we're even told that there is now going to be, moving forward, a great battle between the seed that comes from the woman and the seed that comes from the serpent. In other words, there is now at play. We already saw the beginnings of this even in the creation story, the motifs of light and darkness. Um, of separation. These are all pointing us toward ultimate conflict between good and evil. And what we are told in the New Testament is that the entire world lies under the sway of what? Of the wicked one. That Jesus refers to Satan himself as the ruler of what? This age. Uh, And so what we are given here is the condemnation God is already telling Satan Listen, you are a defeated foe in my narrative. And the defeat is coming. The curse is on the serpent. The curse is on Satan. But what we are given now is promise. And the promise, this is the, one of the first pointers. This is the first pointer, explicit pointer toward the need for a redeemer. The need for a savior. In fact, this is exactly what he says. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there is this powerful picture that is presented that the Redeemer, who will crush the head of the serpent, will also be wounded by that serpent. But it is not, it is not a wound that will kill. This is not Achilles' heel. Uh, this, is, this is a strike upon the heel that will actually turn out to be the very crushing of the serpent himself. Um, and this is exactly what we have played out in the cross of Calvary. Jesus actually commandeers Satan's main method of attack, death, murder. He takes the scapegoat mechanism and he undoes it by being the first ever truly innocent scapegoat. Um, and the, the picture that we have here is powerful because Romans 16:20, we're already, all these motifs established here in this story plays itself out through scripture. What does Paul write at the very close of Romans? And the God of peace, one of my favorite paradoxical statements, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And it's so interesting, Jesus did not conquer Satan or crush his head through violence. He crushed his head by taking the violence into himself. By becoming the one who would become a curse for us. The one who would become sin without sinning that we might become the righteousness of God. So he, the God of peace, it is by the peace of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that Satan actually comes to a violent end. 
Uh, and that is a, such a profound picture of A, it gives us even insight into how Christians should fight battles. And our battles are not by killing our enemies, our battles are by loving them. Our battles are won by loving them. Um, and that is a, a profound reality. Um, but let's consider the woman because this is where I think it gets um, interesting. <laughs> and interesting isn't even the appropriate word, uh, profound really. What does he say to her? And you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, this speaks of the outcome of sin being played out in the two arenas that God told man and woman together to, um, to be blessed and to be fruitful. Your relationship with your husband and your relationship with your offspring. There is going to be now problems within these realities because of sin. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still blessing. He just got done saying that the redemption of the world was going to come through the birth of a woman. So the greatest blessing society has ever experienced is also directly connected with the judgment that goes back to the garden. This is what Anselm meant when he said, oh Felix culpa, oh happy guilt. That there seems to be even in the condemnation upon our first parents for, for their rebellion against God's rule, God takes that condemnation and actually will utilize it to bring blessing to the very people that rebelled against him. And that is a profound reality. So the question of like, well, was labor not painful before the fall? Well, uh, we haven't been given a picture that there's been any babies born yet. Um, and I don't know how labor could ever not be painful. So I don't think that that's, I mean, I don't want to speculate how there could, you could give birth without ever experiencing pain other than epidurals. Okay, so that's not what the point of the story is. The point is, is that there's going to be conflict now in what is meant to be the greatest blessing that there is going to be suffering, that what is ultimately entered into the world through sin is what? It's death. It's death to relationships. It's, it's, a, it's a death that is actually entered into creation itself. Uh, and it is, it is, um, it is pain and, and, and toil. Uh, so suffering, and when, when that says, I will, I mean, the thing that we have to note is God says, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With the painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Just the same as we'll see in just a second, I will curse the ground. He doesn't curse the woman, um, but he allows pain in, in a new way. And I believe my, this is just a, a, a little bit of um, uh, maybe uh, speculative interpretation, but I, I don't think it's, it, it sits outside of what we see as truth in the gospel. But he curses the ground, and he, which produces life, the f food. So we, now through suffering, we will, we will gather our food. He, he, brings, he brings difficulty to the labor. Now through suffering, life will come from the human body. But all of these things, if he had left Adam and Eve in, in, in a sinful state, in the ease 
of life that they had before, they would never see their need for God. He is doing something, I believe, that is profound. He is already beginning to commandeer suffering as one of the main conduits for bringing about salvation and man's desperate need for him. So he's using something that the devil meant to destroy relationship. He is going to actually utilize it again and again and again throughout the entire narrative of scripture and throughout human history. I would still argue to this day, the place that we experience Jesus most intimately is often in the midst of our pain. And I think that that's both an outcome of fall and judgment, but it's also, um, it also points to something even greater mercy, grace, redemption. Does that make sense? Um, so I believe that here is both a judgment that is meant to still bring forth blessing and fruit. That the suffering, the consequence of sin entering in means that suffering is going to be a part of existence, but God will utilize that suffering um, as a means of bringing forth life. And this is why Jesus even said, unless a kernel of wheat fall into the ground in what? die. It won't be fruitful. Um, every, branch, um, every, every branch in me as the true vine, um, if it's going to be fruitful, has to be pruned. Every branch that does not pr produce fruit, I remove. There is a, there is a constant, uh, I, I promise whether it's the removal of the branch or the pruning of the branch, um, it's always painful. <laughs> uh, and, but it's meant to bring about good. And I would say all of the greatest pleasures in life come through difficulty. The greatest pleasures, the sustaining pleasures of existence are the hardest things to actually experience. Uh, and that is, that's, that is truth. The other aspect of, um, of, this, of this, this fall is, he, he says here, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe and I believe that that is, I'm going to make you feel your need for me. But the second part, he doesn't say, I'm going to do this. He's just, he is pointing out the consequence of the fall. And one of the great consequences and conflicts is going to be between the relationship of the man and the woman. Um, and here we see um, the, the, the beginning of a conflict that is, that is written throughout human history. Um, and it's interesting that through much of human history, um, women have been subjected to unbelievable um, suffering at the hands of men. There's, not, there's no denying that in human history. Uh, but there's also no denying in the modern context that it has culminated now with the liberation of women. Um, we still see the conflict being played out, but the conflict is more of playing played out more now like a competition. Um, a competition between the sexes. Instead of seeing, uh, instead of the comforter, which is that word, the helper, uh, the companion now is the competitor. <laughs> and, and we see that. I, Darcy and I have experienced that. Um, she, the desire will be for your husband. And here is an interesting thing. Gerard believes that all, uh, all pain um, all suffering in human existence is due to displaced desire. Um, Augustine had a very similar uh, language, um, which he called dis disordered loves. Uh, but desire is the ultimate 
cause of all human conflict, but it's always the desire for something that you can't have. It's the desire for something that you can't be. Um, and we, as human beings, are constantly, look at, I don't even have to speak it out loud, just look at our culture and how we try to manufacture ways to satisfy desires that, that aren't ours. The ways that we become jealous of what Darcy is saying, like, I, and she's not the only woman, but she was confessing to me. She's like, man, there are just sometimes you look at like Instagram for any length of time and all you find is like you wishing you that you had a different life to live. And what people have been extremely good at is presenting an ideal that nobody's like posting pictures of like you going in um, after your three boys have used the bathroom and all of them have left the toilet seat up and peed everywhere but in the toilet. Nobody's posting that picture, um, you know, in their perfect kinfolk lives. Like, it's like, you know, you're like, oh, your boy always sits down when he pees. That's what he does. That's, this is like our false, you know, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you have boys, you'll know. Um, so, it, but my, my, my point is this, is that we love to present a false front to the world so that everyone looks at us, but we want, we want to create a desire in others for what we have. We want people to want what we have. And we also are driven by the desires of what others have. Uh, and that is, a, that is a dangerous game, which is what ultimately leads to scapegoats. We have to find someone to blame for the dissatisfaction in our lives. Um, and I think that this conflict is so real, um, your desire, and now what's so interesting is what was her desire? She saw the fruit as desirable. The wrong desire now leads to, um, to a perpetuation of desire displaced. This is the consequence of sin. The ultimate goal of the Christian life um, is to imitate the desire of Jesus. And what was Jesus' desire? To please the Father, to be one with the Father, to honor the Father. Our transformed desire is that God is, is taking our disordered loves and he is reorganizing our lives so that our chief desire is God so that we can actually enjoy the things of life that the curse actually ruins because it turns it into a covetousness game. Um, and I think that this is a profound um, picture of the reversal. She saw the fruit as desirable and she takes the fruit and now it leads to um, a, a human history of desire for something that she can't have. You will desire, you will desire, your desire will be for your husband. You will want his position and he will rule over you. The, the picture of conflict between the sexes, which is, a, which is a historical reality throughout human history. And it is still playing itself out today. I have dealt in Door of Hope more conflict and more difficulty over, over um, that, that conflict. And this, every marriage counseling I've done, uh, questions around, uh, around women's roles in the church, all these things, that, all this stuff is still being played out. It's still being played out, um, and we have to recognize it. Now let's look at, let's look at the man. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, it says, To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife, and this just shows men, do not listen to your wives. That's the point of this text. Don't listen. If they talk, just go like this. This is what Evan does to me. Shh. 
No, don't ever do that to your wife. Uh, <laughs> you're like, you know, I realized that someone could go through all my sermons and just pick a whole series of things. Boys peeing on the floor, men don't listen to your wives, and just create the most insane sermon ever. Um, you know, there was, a, for a while, there were people posting um, uh, uh, little quotes of me out of context, and it was, I was, I, I, it was pretty funny. I've tried to collect them, because um, there's, there's some good ones. Um, once I said, I don't know why, but like, I don't want to be the Pope, and I don't even know why I said it. <laughs> because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground. Notice, once again, it's not the man that's cursed. It's the ground that's cursed. I actually like how the King James says it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. There's, there's a, there is, once again, judgment that, that has within it this idea of life that comes through suffering. Cursed is the ground for your sake. What have we been trying to accomplish ever since the fall? To recreate Eden on earth. That's what we want. Think of all the attempts toward it. This is what socialism was supposed to bring, utopia. That's what it was supposed to bring. It didn't. So it was democracy. <laughs> so, like, every government system is always like, invented as an attempt to create heaven on earth. But the fact is, is I don't know what's wrong with this, especially because often those utopian ideals come from Christian thinkers. Um, is that this idea, like, it's like you stopped reading your Bible. Jesus said it was going to get worse before he, we need to be the greatest pessimist and optimist the world has ever seen. We are absolute pessimists, like it's not going to get better. And it's, and, and you're like, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't care because it's all going to burn up anyway, which is what Christians are often accused of. The hope of eternity actually is the thing that gives us fruitfulness in the moment. Um, and, and actually creates concern and care in the moment. But we are not going to fix the world for Jesus um, so that he'll come back. Uh, he's going to come back because of our inability to fix the world. It's the whole reason he came the first time. And if we, we've forgotten our own impotence, which is what should cause us to cast ourselves in total dependence upon Jesus. The ground is cursed because man left in an Adanic, in, an, in, a, in a perfect garden state would not see his need for God. And that's exactly what we've done in Western civilization is that we have created in many ways all of the excesses, all of the escapes necessary to avoid thinking about the fact that we're all gonna die. It's our gift, it's our gift to pretend like we're not gonna die. You know what will cure you of that? That stupid tendency that we have is to watch someone die. And then you're reminded, oh yeah, the death rate really is one per person. When I was a kid, a young man, that was my whole thing. I'm like, I'm never gonna die, I'm like immortal. Um, and I still, yesterday, I was stupidly lifting a 32-foot ladder because I still think I'm in my 20s, and I stuck it underneath the power line, like one inch from the power line. And I'm like, and then I, just, I got up there, and I was over the power line with it, like between my stomach, and, the, and I'm like, and then all of a sudden, it just struck me, you are so stupid right now. And I, because I still believe I'm immortal. And, you know, I am until I die. Um, and so... I, 
you know, and what a dumb, you're like, how'd your pastor die? Oh, he was electrocuted, um, <laughs> cleaning his gutter out, because I guess he's stupid. Um, <laughs> it's like, and the Lord was merciful because he didn't want you to have to say that your pastor was that stupid. Um, so it's like the time I tried to carry a hot tub with some guys and the hot tub fell over the top of me and I was curled up in a little fetal position with three grown men screaming because they thought I'd been crushed by the hot tub only to have it lifted off me and I was just laying there in a little curled up position. That really happened because God also then knew you cannot die under a hot tub. Like that's, <laughs> that's so dumb. <laughs> so the ground has been cursed so, so that we will see in, through the impossibility of life that we will call out upon the name of God, the, one, the only one who can really give us life anyway. Through painful toil, you will eat your food from it all the days of your life. So there will be toil, but there's still provision. There's still life. And you'll be grateful that life still yields itself, even in the toil. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you, were, you are, and to dust you will return. This is one of the greatest consequences of the fall. It's the culmination, is that if man was God-breathed, God breathes his life into him. He forms him out of the, out of the dust of the earth, and he breathes his life into him. Now, the emphasis is, is not the God-breathed component, but the emphasis is on the death component, the return to, to dirt. The, the frustration that is found um, in the history of humankind, the, the deep-rooted conviction that we are made for more than what we are currently experiencing, but we will never be able to achieve what it is that we want because there is frustration in everything, which is why God uses the frustration and the toil and the pain and the conflict between the sexes and all of those things. He uses all of it to create within us a recognition of a deep need that only he can meet. So beautiful. Because look where it ends. It ends with a naming, a covering, a proclamation, and a protection that comes actually through exile. In verses 20 through 23, Adam named his wife Eve. Now, I want you to notice this. She would become the mother of all the living. She's named after the, after the very gift that will come through her suffering, which is that she will be the mother of the living. Literally, the name is, is, means life. Her name means life, not death, life. However, it's interesting that the man names her which already begins to show that what, was, what the naming should have been um, as viewed as a blessing is also a picture here of this new reality of, of his rule over her. So it's a mixed bag, is my point. Um, it's a beautiful thing. There's power, and I could do a whole message on, on the power of naming um, in Scripture, that naming is meant to embody something much deeper than just simply, we just give kids names. You ever notice that all the names in the Old Testament seems to actually be prophetic of what that person would become? Um, and, and so I believe that's why my grandpa name is going to be Captain, because that's exactly what I want to be to my family. <laughs> And, and I don't know why Darcy wants to be Kitty, because it's cute. I think it's just cute. Um, in fact, I, I just met Zion and Kristen just had their baby, little baby girl, Dorothy, Dottie. The youngest, 
I, my parents had me, my mom had me when she was 18 and Darcy's when she was 16. But it really did, when I went over there, it seemed like babies had, had a baby. Like little baby, they're 22 year olds with a little baby girl and she is so beautiful. Um, but I already am like, I'm like, can Captain hold her? <laughs> like I'm naming myself. <laughs> it's power in naming things. <laughs> so, uh, it's so beautiful. Pray, pray for Christian's uh, recovery. It was a, um, a it, everything went well, um, but she's, she's laid up right now. And, um, and uh, man, that little girl is so beautiful. Uh, was, what a gift. They really did. It was like two kids with a little baby. It was <laughs> so cute. <laughs> um, the naming, though, here is a name that is meant to um, draw our attention to the mixture, I think. That it's a blessing and a recognition of what just came. It would only be seen as blessing if we didn't have what preceded it. Um, but then the, look at this. Then the Lord creates provision for him. The, the, the provision is, is happening here. The covering. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He covers their nakedness. Look at what that's pointing to. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That Jesus says, abide in me. Literally, remain in me. Um, be covered. We are covered, we are told, by the blood of Christ. That picture of covering, um, God providing a covering. This is what the children of Israel did when the angel of death came through. They were covered by the blood on the doorpost. God covering over human sin. God providing the covering. Um, this is already pointing toward the, toward the reality. It's giving us insight into the nature of God, that God is not a, one who can't be in the presence of sin. He's constantly getting in the presence of sin. He's putting himself right in the middle of it. He covers it himself. He provides the covering, which shows us that we cannot hide our nakedness without God's provision for something to cover ourselves with. It's why we need a savior. And this is why the gospel has nothing to say to you if you don't think you need saving. There's no, there is no salvation for someone that doesn't think they need to be saved. But I just want you to know, you're fooling yourself if you think that you can save yourself. We need a savior, we need a redeemer, we need someone else to cover the shame that comes in our lives and to, give, and to cleanse us. And I love that picture of God providing a covering. And the proclamation, and the Lord God said, this is so fascinating, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He is not here making a positive statement about humanity. He is saying, behold, the man has become like us. That is, he has become as we did not intend. Uh, that is, he has become his own God. So become like us is not saying he is equal with me. He is saying, he has become something false. That is, he has become something separated from me, detached from me, ruling himself, which is not what I ever intended. I wanted him to rule with me. I wanted him to rule with me. The author shows that humankind's happiness does not rest in being like God as much as it portrays the happiness comes from being with God. And this is the problem. 
we were like God in the sense that we were with him in covenant partnership before the fall. And this is what we are invited into now as Christians through the second Adam, through Jesus, is the ability to once again enter boldly into the throne room of grace because Jesus is with us and we are with him. He is within us and we are in him. This is the picture. He is the covering, but he is also the intimacy and the restoration of right relationship. He has freed us from the tyranny of being our own gods. And even as Christians, we still manage to play God, don't we? Which is the root of all of our sin. I, I think that this, um, this shows us a, a powerful picture here because what he goes on to say is he must not... Um, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That is, he cannot make his situation worse by living in a, in a perpetual death, which what we're told in the final judgment is that there will be a resurrection um, that, and that those who reject the need for a savior will be resurrected to a second death. It is a perpetual death. It's interesting that it's, that it's perpetual death, not perpetual life in torment. It's perpetual death that's aware, um, which is kind of like the mystery of Satan being active nothingness. Um, but here we see this, God, once again, judgment as a means of protection as a means of actually protecting humans from making it worse for themselves. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And we we're told that the seraphim is placed um, in front of the entrances of the garden with a flaming sword moving to and fro that, to keep humanity out of the garden. So they have been banished from the garden the woman who is the companion now finds herself um, as the competitor in conflict. The man who is the gardener now has become the farmer toiling to make the ground produce. The fall has entered and you and I are still experiencing the consequences of this story. But the good news lies in John chapter 20. When Jesus is marched before the people, his body beaten, the crown of thorns upon his head, and an exact uh, restating of this passage, behold, the man has become like one of us, now is restated by Pilate himself, man, fallen man, saying over God in the flesh, behold the man. I think that it is pointing us back to the garden statement, Genesis, behold, man has become like what we didn't intend, his own God. Now, in John 20, Pilate saying of Jesus, behold the man, and that is the truest statement Pilate ever said because he was the truest man that's ever lived. And he becomes God's answer, his antidote to the fall. All of this is already looking forward to Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live which qualified him for the death that he died. And the death that he died qualifies us today for the life that he lived. What a profound and beautiful picture of the gospel. A judgment that has as its girding nothing but God's deep desire for whatever reason, the mystery lies in this, that God 
does not need us, but he has chosen to not exist without us. Will you accept that gift? You can't save yourself. You need a savior. Jesus is that savior. Amen.